I was talking to Kyler Henry um, of the Henrys, you know, that we pray for in Turkey, missionaries, this week, and I was telling him that we were, you know, something about that we were praying for him as a congregation all together. And he said, oh, wow, that's, that's really something. Thank you for doing that. Like, would you let me know whenever there's a Sunday that you're, like, whenever you guys do that, would you let me know? And I was like, well, yeah, but I mean, it's, it's every Sunday. And, and he was just like, wow. I mean, he was really encouraged by that. So, you know, we, we pray for lots of different things, and that's, and that's good. And uh, he was just, I think, super encouraged and kind of blown away by that. And so we'll make sure we're, you know, reaching out and letting them know as regularly as we can. It's good stuff to pray for. Uh, will you open up your Bibles to James chapter 1? James 1, we're going to be in, in verse 12 through 15 this morning. James 1, 12 to 15, a crown of life or an offspring of death. A crown of life or an offspring of death. One of the things that I am coming to appreciate about James as we're working our way through it is how regularly James finds just a striking image to illustrate whatever point he's making. Last week, it was the sun-scorched wildflowers And in our passage this morning, we have these two striking images that are contrasted with one another. There's a crown of life and then an offspring of death. So I want to just start by fixing those images sharply in our minds, and then we'll we'll roll into the text, and it'll help guide us. First, the crown of life. We don't see crowns that often in our normal life. I mean, people don't go around wearing crowns all that often. But for us, when we think of a crown, they almost exclusively represent royalty. They're usually metal, gold, bedecked with jewels and represent a king or a queen. But in the culture of the New Testament, the people that James is writing to, what a crown represented was more about victory and triumph and honor and beauty than about royalty because the most common use of a crown in James's time that he's writing to when he talks about a crown of life is a symbol of victory in sports like today's trophies or medals that you would hang around your neck they would put a crown of palm branches on the head of whoever was victorious we see that in first Corinthians 9 25 Paul talks about athletes exercising self-control in all things to receive a perishable crown uh, while we are seeking an imperishable one. So you can imagine an Olympic champion standing on the podium, having triumphed with a gold medal being hung around their neck. But in those days, it was a crown of palm branches being put on their head. It's a sign of glory, victory, beauty, and honor. And what Paul calls an imperishable crown James here refers to as the crown of life. James is wooing you with an image of yourself on the podium being crowned victorious with a crown that is everlasting life. You know how the first days and weeks of a newborn baby, the baby seems like it's just radiating life. You hold a brand new baby, you go visit a brand new baby, and it just looks and smells like 
fresh life or how pregnant women have a glow about them when they're fresh, pregnant, and there's life growing inside of them and we say that they're, they're glowing. Well, imagine the glow of everlasting life when it crowns your head on the day of glory. This is what James is wooing us with. C.S. Lewis helps our imaginations here in the weight of glory when he says this, it's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. He's just talking about glorified people. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or else, a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You've never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. The crown of life that James is talking about is an everlasting splendor. It is a destination to which you are headed if your trust is in Christ, where you will be crowned with everlasting life, with everlasting splendor. Or immortal horrors. That brings us to the opposite striking image in our passage, the offspring of death. In talking about the source of sin and temptation, James imagines human desire conceiving and then giving birth to a baby, which is sin itself, which then grows up and bears its own child, death. The image is of a grotesque child that is sin, who then births another baby that is death itself. Death personified. Like we think of the grim reaper, a baby who is death, what Lewis called an immortal horror. What a shocking image James gives us, isn't it? When babies come, they're so full of life and delight and wonder, but instead James has you think of one that radiates death and terror. This is an image of hell, of the curse of God, of the end of human desires left unchecked, the end of human sin unrepented of, the outer darkness. There are only two possible outcomes for mankind. The crown of life or the offspring of death. There are only two possible outcomes for you who are hearing me here this morning. You personally will experience for yourself either the crown of life or the offspring of death forever. And God wants to motivate you by this reality this morning, urging you to seek his blessing, to seek eternal life in Christ Jesus. And he shows you the path. So let's look at James 1, 12 to 15 and lay these things in front of us this morning from God's own word. James 1, 12 to 15. 
Blessed is the man who, who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So, as we approach this passage, these few verses, I'm going to start with the offspring of death, the last few verses, and then we're going to end with the crown of life, because I want to end with life and glory. Now, James wrote it this way on purpose, starting with life and moving to death, but it's also part of a larger book in James where he is moving us to life, and this is in the scripture which moves us from death to everlasting life. The Bible ends with a picture of the crown of life, and for all who are in Christ, we move from death to life, and so that's the way I want to move through this passage this morning. So first, the offspring of death in verses 13 to 15. The offspring of death. James contrasts the path of the blessed man who remains steadfast under trials and receives the crown of life with a person who does one of two things. Blames God for his temptation and sin and gives in to his temptations, giving birth to sin, which eventually begets death. So let's look at these one at a time. Let's get it in front of us again, verses 13 to 15. Uh, let me say this. Look at verse 12. Have your Bible open in front of you. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. That, that word for trial and test is the same word for temptation, because you might think, what's the connection between these verses? Let no one say when he's tempted or given a trial or put under a test. This is all the same Word. This is all the same idea, the tempting, the trials, and the testing. So first, verse 13, let no one say when he's tempted or tried or tested, I'm being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So first we have a command, not to blame God for our temptation to sin. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. The struggle is real. Especially if you embrace the doctrines of the sovereignty of God and his providence and his decrees, that God decrees whatsoever comes to pass. When you affirm with Paul in Ephesians 1 that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. And with the psalmist in Psalm 115 that our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. Or with Amos who asks, does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? And with Moses who tells us that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. When you know that God decrees whatsoever comes to pass, 
you might mistakenly conclude from that that this means that God tempts you to sin. That it's God's fault when you sin. But James makes it very clear that you are not to conclude this. In fact, you are forbidden from concluding this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. God's sovereignty is not limited by human responsibility. Rather, God's sovereignty upholds human responsibility. God is absolutely sovereign and you are fully responsible for your actions. Somebody once asked Charles Spurgeon, a great pastor and preacher and man of God, to reconcile those two truths. How is it that God is all the way sovereign and man is completely responsible for his own actions? And Spurgeon said, friends don't need to be reconciled. I like that. Another person told him, I refuse to believe that God is exhaustively sovereign and man is fully responsible until I can, I I refuse to believe it until I can totally understand how those work together. And Spurgeon said, well, you might as well stop eating until you can understand how it is that man has to eat to live and yet it's God who keeps him alive. God is exhaustively sovereign and you are fully responsible for your actions. And God does not tempt you to sin. Embrace all those biblical truths together. And if you want to think more deeply about how all that works together, then we just happen to be dealing with exactly that in Sunday school. And so you can come at nine o'clock and we're going through the London Baptist Confession of Faith on God's decrees. And you can dig into all the details with us of how that works. But the point here in James is clear, isn't it? Don't say when you're being tempted, I am being tempted by God. Don't blame God for your sinful desires or for your evil. Some of the thinking about all, how all that works might be complicated, but this is simple. When you're being tempted, don't blame God. God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes, the preacher says. Don't say, God made me this way. I have to go along with it. Don't blame God for your sin or for your desire for sin. That's an evil thing to do. Here's the truth. God cannot be tempted with evil. And God himself tempts no one. God in his nature is perfectly pure, perfectly holy, perfectly righteous. He does not sin. He cannot sin. He cannot be tempted by evil. Do not suggest otherwise. God is light, and in him there is no darkness. Don't accuse God of wrongdoing. Of all the wicked things that you could do, blaming the blameless God to cover up for your evil slandering goodness himself to justify your wickedness, claiming that God, the holy God who's of purer eyes than to look on evil, has done something wrong or is responsible for your wrong is a deep and a profound offense against him. To put it mildly, don't do it. 
I'm shocked at how often Christians will speak about God as if he has done them wrong or as if he doesn't know what he's doing, as if they know better than him, as if God shouldn't have allowed certain things to happen. Maybe we don't say it directly, but we imply it in the way we talk about what God has done. If you're tempted to speak that way, to blame God for your sin, hold your tongue. Do not slander the Father in heaven. Loathe the idea of it. And don't let empathy lead you to join someone else in assigning blame to the Father for their own struggle and sin because you feel bad for their pain. So, don't say that God is tempting you to sin. So then how should we understand our temptations? If they're not coming from God, where are they coming from? And how do they lead to death? James makes it really clear for us that temptation comes from our own desires, which lure and entice us. And then when our desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and then sin grows into its fullness and brings forth death. That's where evil comes from. So the main point here in James is that your temptations do not come from God. They come from your desires. You see something or think of something you want and you desire it. And that desire lures and entices you. And then that desire conceives and then gives birth to sin. And sin grows and begets death. So whose fault is your sin? True. True. Who else's fault? (laughs) Mine. (laughs) Uh, It was that head, Adam, that you gave to me. Uh, Surely we're fallen in Adam, but our sin is our fault. My sin is my fault. Do you know how important it is to own all your sin and not look for someone else to blame? The confession of sin is so central to our salvation because if we don't truly admit we were wrong, how can we ask for forgiveness? So often we excuse our sin by blaming other people or blaming God like Adam and Eve did. God came to Adam and Adam said, it was the woman you gave me, blaming Eve for his sin. God went to Eve Well, Adam even, it was the woman you gave me, maybe even blaming God. God goes to Eve and she says, it was the serpent who deceived me and I ate. Eve blames the serpent and suggests that maybe being deceived about God's clear command is an acceptable excuse. We'll often hide behind that. I didn't know any better. Or probably more often, we recast our sin as virtue. I'm not a flatterer, I'm an encourager. I'm not a gossip, I just care about people and their problems. I'm not envious, I just think that justice means everyone gets the same thing. I'm not a malcontent, I'm a righteous sufferer. I'm not a liar, I'm just sharing my perspective. I'm not a coward, I'm just kind. But until we acknowledge our sin, until we face it head on and call it what it is and confess it, how can we ask for forgiveness for it? 
We have to repent of trying to cover our own sin with fig leaves that are absolutely insufficient so that we can acknowledge our shame and our guilt and bring it to God so that he can offer the perfect covering of the righteousness of Christ. And sin has to be dealt with because sin is headed somewhere, James tells us. Where is sin headed? Where does sin lead? To death. And this, not just the grave, but the pit, the second death, Gehenna, hell, the lake of fire, the outer darkness. This is where the broad and easy road of sin inevitably and inexorably leads. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Or as John Owen says it, be killing sin, or it will be killing you. The crown of life, or the offspring of death. We can't make peace with sin, ignore it, leave it alone, much less feed it or house it or make it a nice bed to stay in, because sin grows up and bears children of darkness. Little things grow into big things especially if you feed them. Listen, you cannot manage your sin. You cannot nurse your temptations and expect them to stay small. They will grow. James says, desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. If you give way to temptations, they will bring sin into your life. And if you don't kill that sin by confession and repentance, it will grow until it births death in your life. Confess and forsake your sin. This is the strategy. Are you tempted by sin? Are you giving way to sin? Confess and forsake. If not, sin will grow until it is fully grown. And when it is fully grown, you will find that the sin you thought you could manage, the sin you thought was serving you, is birthing you a grandchild. Death. Sin gets away from you. It grows and it has children of its own who will cannibalize and destroy you. Do not play with sin. Confess and forsake it. Is there a temptation or a sin that you've been playing with? That you've been making room for in your life? Today is the day to kill it before it grows and destroys you. You have no promise of mercy tomorrow, but you have promise of mercy today. Today is the day of salvation. Hear the warning. Each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. But there's one more thing we should address while we're here. And that is looking to Scripture to understand the relationship between temptation and sin. And this is really important, especially today when there's lots of confusion about temptation and sin and how they relate. Weigh very carefully what you hear about these things because they are often being used to make room for sin 
in our lives. So let me say a few things about the relationship between temptation and sin as James lays them out here. First, temptation is not the same thing as sin. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Jesus was tempted in every respect as we are, yet without sin. Temptation and sin are different. If you are tempted by sin and you overcome, you should not feel guilty but victorious. Martin Luther said, you can't keep birds from diving at your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. Temptation and sin are not the same thing. The Bible's clear about that. Temptation gives birth to sin when desire conceives. That's what James tells us. Temptation gives birth to sin when desire conceives. Conception, conceiving, involves the coming together of two things. And I take it that what's coming together here is any consent to the desire. There's a desire, that's temptation. There's a consent, and that results in sin. I take it the consent, weigh what I'm saying here, I'm making an interpretation on what that consent is. I take it it's any giving way to the desire. Any consent to the desire. Any embrace of a desire for something that God forbids. Any owning of the desire. Any movement towards the desire. Any making room for the desire. Certainly any acting on the desire. Because sin surely begins at the level of desire, doesn't it? Everyone who looks at a woman to lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That's sin that's going on long before the action of adultery happens out in the world. It's actually in the heart at the level of desire. Anyone who looks at a woman to lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So this tells us that desires themselves can be sinful. Adultery can be committed in the heart with a desire and a look. And there is a line when the enticement of the desire and temptation conceives and becomes a sinful desire. Part of why this is so important to get right is because many are being deceived about homosexual desires these days on this specific front. You have people who call themselves gay Christians because they believe that their homosexual desires are fine so long as they don't act on them. But this is to forget that lust itself is a sin. And also that the homosexual desire is itself a twisting of the natural sexual desire. Let me explain this a little further because it's really important that we get this right. Romans 1 speaks about the impure lusts of the heart. So there are lusts of the heart that are impure, they're defiled, they're unclean. It's important that we understand that. That's desires of the heart can be unclean and impure. And specifically, Romans 1 refers to homosexual desires as dishonorable passions. Dishonorable passions that lead to actions contrary to nature all of which is clearly framed as sin and, in fact, judgment that God hands people over to when they reject him. So homosexual desires are dishonorable passions. They're passions that are not honorable before the Lord, leading to actions contrary to nature. Now, often today, people want to seek peace with sinners and strugglers 
And so they will equivocate between homosexual desires and heterosexual desires as if they're basically the same and equally bad. But that's not the case. Heterosexual desire is normal. It's natural sexual desire that's a gift from God that has a good and lawful goal where it can find expression within a marriage, which is by definition between a man and a woman. Sexual desire is a gift that God gives to people with a goal, with an aim, with an end where it can be rightly expressed within marriage. Homosexual desire, on the other hand, is a twisting of the natural sexual desire. There's, sexual desire is a good thing that's given by God, but it's twisted into homosexual desire, which Romans 1 clearly calls impure and dishonorable. And that desire has no good or lawful goal where it could possibly find expression. Thus, homosexual desire is not the same as natural sexual desire, and the very desire itself is to be put to death, and certainly not to be taken on as an identity. Confess and forsake. It would take us too far from the point of James here to launch into everything the Bible says about homosexuality, We have resources for you if you need more help in thinking through that issue. But it's important at this point that we don't fall for the idea that desires for things that God forbids are morally neutral and can be made peace with. Rather, desires themselves can be sinful and sinful desires should be confessed and forsaken. And certainly not taken on as your identity. There is... No such thing as a gay Christian. Paul goes through a list of sins, including homosexuals, and says, and such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. So that's not to say at all that someone struggling with homosexual desires can't come to Jesus. Of course they can. That's what Paul says. Such were some of you, identified by those sins, but you've been washed. You no longer are identified by your sin. And if you find remaining sinful temptations in your heart, you should confess them and forsake them. So, your temptation to sin is not God's fault. It's your fault. And your sin is your responsibility. And if you don't deal with it, it will grow and eventually it will bear you a grandchild that is death itself when you are cast into the lake of fire under God's curse forever. But thanks be to God and Christ Jesus, it does not have to end that way for anyone. And so this brings us to verse 12, the crown of life. Blessed is the man, James says. Have you ever heard that phrase in the Bible? Blessed is the man. What's being set before us is the blessing of God. And James starts with a clear allusion to the Psalms. The Psalms, as a book, begin this way, don't they? Blessed is the man. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. 
Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Isn't this the same idea that James is setting in front of us? There are two possibilities. There are two kinds of people, and there are two ends to your life. The crown of life or the offspring of death. The righteous will stand on the day of judgment, but the way of the wicked will perish. But there's a problem, isn't there? Because the law was given to grant blessings to the obedient and curses to the disobedient. Life to those who keep God's commands and death to those who break them, like we read in Deuteronomy 30 this morning. But what's the problem? We break them. You break them. You have broken them. And so the law can bring for you only the curse of God, only the offspring of evil. And so the blessing of God cannot come to us by our obedience. The blessing of God cannot come to us by the law, by doing enough righteous things. But praise be to God that blessing was offered to us in Abraham by a promise. And Abraham believed that promise and God counted it to him as righteousness. And so the psalmist picks this theme back up in Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, about his sin, when I kept silent, when he didn't confess, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or mule without understanding, with, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. God has made a way for sinners to receive the blessing of God, the blessing that is the crown of life by sending Christ Jesus to live as one of us, to perfectly obey God's law the way you ought to have, and the way I ought to have, to obtain the blessing and then to give that freely to us by faith as he bears the curse of death for us. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Christ Jesus. This is the only hope for all mankind. This is the only way to receive the crown of life instead of the offspring of death by trusting in Jesus' work for you on the cross to bear your curse and death, and to give you God's blessing of life. It's yours by faith in the promise. Do you look to him for that promise by faith? 
Have you repented of sin and put all your trust in Christ Jesus so that you receive his blessing and let Christ take your curse? If not, do it today. And if so, the same way you began with trust and faith in Christ, so continue today and every day of your life. And this is what James says. Look at verse 12 again. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. We receive this by the promise of God. The crown of life comes to those who love him by the promise of God. How do you get a promise? How do you get something that was promised to you? You just believe it and receive it. Like if I told my kids, I promise I'm going to take you camping tomorrow, what would they need to do to get that promise? <laughs> Nothing, really, just start gathering their camping stuff, right? They don't need to really do anything. If I promise this is what I'm going to do, what if I promised I'm going to take you camping tomorrow, and they went in their room and had a talk and came out and started offering me pennies, saying, Dad, if you'll take us camping tomorrow, we'll give you 17 pennies. I wouldn't be pleased. i say, I already told you I'm taking you camping. I already promised you. You don't have to come and try to get me to do it. Do you not believe me? Do you not believe my promise that I'm going to do it? That you come here and try to buy me to do it when I've already given it to you freely by a promise? A promise is just received by faith. That's how you get the content of the promise. And so God promises the crown of life, James says, to those who love him. So what do you need to do to get the crown of life? Just remain steadfast until you receive it. Don't turn away from the promise. Don't fail to enter your rest by unbelief. Don't get close to the promised land and then decide, actually, you'd rather go back to Egypt because there's some big guys standing in the way to inheriting it. Like Joshua and Caleb standing at the edge of the promised land. You just trust God and go get it. Believe the promise. The crown of life is yours by the promise of God. That's received by faith. We endure and we receive the promise of the crown of life by faith. James says that the promise is for those who love God. Did you see that? Which God promised to those who love him. You don't earn it by loving him good enough, but it's true that his crown is for those who love him. Peter says, though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. At the end of the day, God himself is the prize. At the end of the day, God is the crown of eternal life. Jesus said to his father, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. To know God truly and intimately without sin and shame and wrath and distance, that's the true reward. That's the crown that we are headed for. And so if we love God, we will overcome anything to arrive at home with him. For love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. It's flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame 
of the Lord. Love God and press on until you see him face to face. Again, the crown is given to you freely by a promise and received by faith. But one of the marks of those who will receive it is that you love God, that you want the crown of life, that you want to arrive there. It's one of the gifts he gives you along the way. So endure. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Remain steadfast under trial. Stand the test, and you will receive the crown of life. Don't wilt under hardship. Don't begin to doubt God and his promises when the trials come. Don't give way to temptation, no matter how strong it feels. Don't drift from God and his word and his people and his worship. You need help to endure. You're tested with trials, and God calls you to stand the test. Like one of those popsicle stick bridges they make, and then the weight presses, you put the weights on top, and see how much it will withstand until it breaks. That's you. Don't break. Remain steadfast under the test. You have the power of God in you, the same power that rose Christ from the dead. You have that power at work in you. Stand in the strength that God supplies and don't break and wilt under the test, but remain steadfast and endure. God will supply all the strength you need. Will you trust God and weather the trial and endure to the end? Or will you give up and embrace the offspring of death? Those are your only two options. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things, Paul says. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, a crown, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul compares striving for the crown of life that James is putting in front of you to athletes because that's where the crown metaphor comes from. Think about athletes for a minute. I'm sorry to be so relevant, but I'm going to have to tie it into the Super Bowl. Forgive me. (laughs) Think about the people in the Super Bowl today. Think about how much they sacrificed to get there. They've trained hard when they didn't feel like it. They got up early and went to practice. They probably pushed through being sick, being injured. They've played through pain. They've gotten up early. They've stayed late. They've endured endless scrutiny from the media, scrutiny from fans. They've welcomed criticism from their coaches. They've been teachable. They've eaten healthy and trained their bodies to be as strong and fast as possible. They've suffered public defeat and the shame that comes from it. They've been humbled time and time again. They've sacrificed time with family, relationships with friends, missed milestone events, traveled the country, put their bodies and even potentially their lives at risk on the field, and they've done it all for the victory and the trophy and the ring and the glory. And the glory is real, but it's fleeting. There's a crown they get, but it's a perishable crown. Next year, we'll struggle to remember who was even in the Super Bowl last year. But we exercise self-control in all things to receive an imperishable crown, the crown of life. Should we be ready to sacrifice any less than these guys are sacrificing to get this perishable crown? 
Should we be any less motivated and committed to the glory that's set in front of us? We make it by faith, absolutely. But that doesn't mean we float our way there three feet off the ground with a constant sense of calm and ease. This is James's point so far through the letter, right? You have to make it through the trials. Paul literally says, I pummel my body and make it a slave. In 1 Corinthians 9.27. Hebrews says, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. We need endurance to make it to the coronation ceremony. And this endurance comes from God. Paul makes that very clear when he prays for the Colossians to be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share the inheritance of the saints in light. God grants endurance by faith and the means he uses are your trials. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So don't give up. Don't give in. Is your life hard right now? Are all his billows and his waves crashing over you? Is temptation to sin fierce right now? Do you feel the pull of the flesh and of the world to disobey God and walk in the lusts of the flesh? Don't give up. Endure. Believe. Look to the crown of life that's set before you and promised to you. And when you stand the test, you will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Don't you love God? Don't you love him more than sin, more than anything the world can offer you? Don't you love him more than your comfort? You will enter into your rest. It's coming. You will receive the crown of life and it will all have been worth it. Endure, press on, stay the course. These trials that you're experiencing now won't even be worth comparing to the weight of eternal glory that you will enjoy soon if you persevere to the end by God's grace. You will enjoy glory and joy and peace with God for trillions upon trillions upon trillions of years if you will just endure for another 50, 60, or 70 years. Can you do it in the strength that God supplies? Can you press on to receive the crown of glory, the crown of life? Press on, fight hard, be tough, don't give up, Don't choose the way of sin. Don't compromise. Endure in your love for God and you will make it. There will be a time soon when we will all meet there. When we will all meet on the other side and we will be radiating the glory of our our spirits perfected, awaiting our resurrection bodies. And we will meet there and we will tell stories about our time here. What kind of stories will you have? They be stories of endurance and perseverance and patience in the grace of God. 
Can you hear the joy in Paul's words when he's just about ready to enter into that? In 2 Timothy 4, 6-8, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That's you. Love the coming of Christ. Long for it. Look to him. Flee from sin. Confess and forsake your sin. Trust God and endure to the end. And we will meet there on the other side. Let's pray for God's help. God, thank you for setting before us life and death. Thank you for setting in front of us the crown of life and the offspring of death and reminding us clearly the only way forward. Father, we love you and we trust you And we ask that you would grant us the gift of perseverance, the gift of endurance to the end. And we know that you will because we are not of those who shrink back, but of those who endure to the end by faith in you as your gift and receive the crown of life. Father, how we long for that day. Keep that crown of glory in front of our eyes to draw us forward as an anchor into the future, behind the curtain, behind the veil to where you are in your presence. Father, remind us and give us endurance and strength and joy as we go, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Tommy, you come and take us to the table.